and welcome to Getting It. The conversation where we try to understand life just that little bit more. My name's Dan. And my name is Saban. We're both medical students based in London. And in this episode, we welcome Ian Redfern to Getting It. We talk about the rules and mechanics of Formula One, its rich history, as well as an overview of the sport today and in the future. Good afternoon, Saban. Good afternoon, Dan. How are you doing today? Not too bad. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So today we're joined by a special guest, um, Ian Redfern. Uh, He's going to be talking with us today about uh, Formula One. So I remember we did a long time ago, towards the start of getting it, we did an episode on tennis, right? Do you remember that one? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. It was one of the very old old episodes. And um, that was the only one up to this point about sport. Yeah. So yeah, today we're going to be uh, going into the second sport of the like mini sport series, and yeah, we're, we're joined by Ian, who's a, a very big fan of Formula One. So uh, definitely not your brother either. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's a small detail. I had to, I had to add that. Yeah, he's my brother. Don't um, know this guy. And so um, yeah, uh, welcome Ian. Thank you very much. And um, could you just tell us a bit about when you started watching Formula One? Well, I first tuned into Formula One. It was actually where my dad uh, used to play Formula One. Um, on the radios coming home um, from like school or football or something. But I first properly tuned into it in 2007, in March 2007, because um, I was reading on the news about this young up-and-coming kid called Lewis Hamilton, and he was British, so it took my interest. And um, since then, I've just been following his races. I've watched every single race of his, bar I can only count a handful that I've missed of his races. So that's since 2007? Yeah, exactly. Wow. And how many races has he roughly raced since? He's raced in 267 races. After this point? Wow. Yeah. How long is each race usually-ish? Every race is an hour and a half, but um, it's, it's in, divided into every two weeks. So it's, a, it's an entire race weekend. So you start on Friday, you have the Friday practice sessions, and then you have the Saturday qualifying. So that determines the grid order. And then on Sunday you have the race. And I don't know, I don't get, I get an adrenaline rush from, I don't get an adrenaline rush from watching many sports, but Formula One, there's no, there's no other feeling compared to it. And I've done go-karting a few times and it's, I don't know, it's just so interesting. I love it. So, I mean, it's out of all the sports that people follow these days, I think Formula One, um, well, we can talk a bit about it later on, Mm. the, like the popularity of Formula One, because it's gone through a bit of a journey with that, I think. Yeah. But yeah, it's interesting that at that age you were like six, five, six years old mm. and that you started getting naturally into Formula One and there was no one really around you sort of like forcing you into it. You just of your own accord started watching the races and it was good timing as well, wasn't it? Because that's just as Lewis Hamilton started to Very race. Fortunate. And yeah, so, okay, that that's quite a nice like context around why you started watching Formula One. And up to this day, it's, it's clear. I mean, I know personally that you're a massive fan, very knowledgeable about the sport. So um, yeah, we thought it was perfect to bring you on to give an overview of the sport. So if we just think now to the absolute basics. So yeah. what is Formula One? You know, like as a sport, how does it work on a, in simple terms? Formula One is essentially, it's the pinnacle of motorsport. Mm -hmm. So Formula One, its name is derived from formula, which is the regulations that each car and each team must follow follow to design the car. The regulations change every six or seven years. And one is the top, just the first first principle, first formula. And um, it's open-wheeled, single-seater racing. They travel around the world and it attracts the 20 best drivers in the whole world. 20 fastest drivers. So does that then mean there's a Formula 2? Yes, there's a Formula 2, there's a Formula 3, yes, Formula (laughs) 4. So what kind of level does that pertain to? The purpose of the junior categories is to funnel the best drivers to get them into Formula 1, if that makes sense. So to get to Formula 1, it's a a slog. It's it's a really long (laughs) process. It takes about 15 years to get to the top. So if I was to go through Lewis Hamilton's way into Formula 1, 
he started when he was eight years old in go-karting and for five or uh, for seven years he was competing in go-karting so he started at lower levels junior levels then he went into regionals nationals internationals across europe and around the world and he had to be the best at each of those categories in order for even to get him into the next level which is junior single seater racing so that's like for him it was formula renault and that was and those were the best guys around europe competing and um, he won those championships. Normally, it takes two or three years to uh, graduate into the next category of, of racing. But he did it in every year, which is mad. So every level he went to, he was just the best at that level. And exactly. Went straight up to the next one. Didn't need time to acclimatize, really. Exactly. So it was Formula Renault. Then it was Formula 3. Mm-hmm. Then it was GP2 or Formula 2 nowadays. And then it was Formula 1. He got oh. into Formula 1. So he started, he started racing in 1993. And he got into Formula 1 in 2007. So and you have to dedicate your whole life into it. Because he went as fast as you could. It's, oh, I get what you mean. So it's like for a doctor to get to like consultancy from the start of med school, you know, if, if you're doing it even the quickest way possible, that's still going to be over 10 years. In my, you know, in, my, in my personal opinion, it's the most exclusive sport in the world. Yeah, that's what I was just going to say, because I can't think of any other sport that would have such a hard kind of series of Rise levels to, to get through. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so... I mean, that makes Lewis Hamilton a really good example of like how you get into the sport and like the mm-hmm. quickest way you could possibly get into it. And it's always such a long process. But going back to what you said about it being, so it's open wheeled, is that what you said? Yes, open wheel. What does that mean? So basically your head's, well, nowadays it's a bit different because you've got, there's, there's a halo, but your head's completely exposed and the cockpit is open. So, so um, normally in a car, you've obviously got a roof covering your head, but in Formula One, you don't have that. Your head's completely out there. And so, because the, I, I follow it, Nowhere near as much as you do, but um, I do have a rough understanding of it as well. The the engineering of Formula One cars, I mean, if someone's never seen them before, it's really hard to describe like what they are. You know, yeah. they're, they're so unique. Could you just like try and describe the vehicle itself and how it's different? So you said that, you know, even the fact that the driver's head is just out, you know, you're kind yeah. of like exposed. It's, it's really unique. It's unbelievable. So a Formula One car, it, it, it costs about... 40 million pounds to make a Formula One car, roughly. Man, so it's so, not it, cheap for it, crash. It. And 28, 27, 28 million just comes from the engine itself. So, um, and it's a hybrid. So you've got, and uh, you've got a combustion engine and then you've got an electrical engine component as well. You've got a front wing, which is, uh, and a rear wing, which work in alliance to add downforce to the car so that they can go around the corners as fast as they can. How fast can they go around a corner? Well, it varies, obviously, oh, yeah. but the maximum it can go around is 190 miles an hour, up to 200 miles an hour around a corner. Uh, Formula One cars can take some corners flat. There's a, there's a corner in Japan which is a which is at an angle of 130 degrees. It's called 130R, and they take that completely flat out at 200 miles an hour. What, 130? On, no way. 130 degrees. Seriously? 130R. Yeah. So it's like that. A hundred degrees. What the hell? The G-force on that is insane. The, the lateral Gs are incredible. They pull up to six Gs. Wow. On their necks, so they have to have unbelievable neck strength. Have you ever been? Have you ever been to like a theme park where, like, stealth at Thor Park? Yeah, they pull up to four point five Gs when they take off. A Formula One car pulls up to five Gs when they take off. Yeah, but kind of, I don't know what that that's plane is. Longitudinal forces. Yeah, so when you have that kind of G force, that's all right because you've got you know the seat and the back. Yeah, but when you're going to the side, that's that's an oh, ab man. workout. It's a wor- it's a proper workout, and when you're going when you're braking as well. A Formula One car in 65 meters, it decelerates from 130 miles an hour to a flat stop in 2.9 seconds. You can't even fathom the forces. You can't even yeah. fathom how how immense that is. So regarding that, I, I once heard when I was like a kid that Formula One racing is so intense. There's so much adrenaline that 
the racers or the drivers lose weight, significant yeah. amount of weight through like sweat yeah. and stuff. They lose up to three or four kilos in, in a race. In a couple of hours. In Just yeah. through water. But Just, they don't even replace that water. Like, no, it's drink not. Or anything. No, they, well, they, they, do get the, they do get to drink. So they, they do actually have like a straw that goes, that goes through their helmet. But do it's a very, li- very limited amount because weight composition in a Formula One car oh, is so yeah. important. So they so, need to retain the... Yeah. Oh, so is that something they have to consider like throughout the race oh, like, exactly. in, the, in the last laps completely, and stuff? Completely. They're like, okay, the way I'm taking this corner is not going to be the same as I was doing it like an hour ago. It's a, yeah, it's a constant weigh-in going into a Formula 1 race. Every what? race is a constant weigh-in. You need to be as light as you can in, in order to... Because if you if you start a race and you start and your reaction times are two tenths or one tenth out of line compared to the driver next to you, you'll lose 15, 20 meters at the end of that straight. No way. And that is straight. Mad. Yeah. I've never even considered it. It's, like it's basically the margins. It's yeah. just the margins are The margins are so fine. And you've got, what's amazing is that, so you've have you guys seen like Apollo missions, like watched any documentaries on that? You've got like a control center. They've got that for every F1 car. So you've got, the, you've got 50, 80 people, no, way more than that, probably like 100, 200 people at the, showing up to the races, but you've got 1,500 people at the factory back at home mm. who are monitoring every move of the car, the live. telemetry live during the race, giving constant feedback to the guys out in the on the track. So it's unbelievable. You've optimized it to the like nth degree. Like yeah. you, you can't optimize it anymore pretty much. Every gram is accounted for, isn't it? It's the, it's the most, it's, the, it's such a perfectionist sport. It's unbelievable. And you can't and you can't get anything wrong. I'll give you an example. In the two thousand in the twenty twenty Turkish Grand Prix, a, a, a really really talented driver, Max Verstappen, he was re- it was a wet race and he was at the pits and they adjusted his uh, right front wing by three degrees for more aero. But the, on the left one, they made a mistake and they left it unadjusted. That completely completely ruined his race because he burned one tire way quicker than he burned the other one. That's those are just the fine margins that that separate the best from losing so that's like the modern day formula one um like process now yeah um when did it start getting super high tech was it like that from the very start because like no. i don't know like when did formula one start formula one formula one the formula one championship was established in 1950 but there are non-championship races going back to the 20s and the 30s so that just so, people rocking up with like yeah but it became very very exclusive Probably throughout the nineties, the nineteen nineties were notably was notably the most technically advanced decade in Formula One's history. In the eighties, you had up to fifty drivers, forty five drivers showing up to a race, and it was, there were so many of them showing up that you'd actually need to do a pre qualifying to the qualifying to funnel like the top th- tw- top, top the top twenty two drivers. Do you know what I mean? So it's it's made massive advancements over time. Yeah, and you were saying that there are teams with. Sometimes is it thousands of people? So Mercedes, who are the best team in Formula One at the moment, they have over two thousand people in that t- operating in that team. So and each person has a. Sp- at that point, you must be like the the chief boss of a certain bolt or something. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Wait, so two 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 hundred? Did you say two two thousand? Two thousand. Wait for two. So two thousand people, like all working for together two on, a, on a single race. Yeah, for two cars. Some people in and that weird radios, factory. they're all like communicating, yep. being like, what unbelievable. The logistics and everything. It's unbelievable. Insane. Just to monitor two drivers, just to work on two drivers. I it's, suppose they are probably working to the limit of engineering capability and just human physical capability. Exactly. As well. it's, it's just at the peak of engineering, human physical capabilities. It's unbelievable. And so you'll have, um, okay, so two drivers per team, right? Yes who compete every week. And yeah. you said it's about 20 races per year. Yeah. And nowadays, so each team has to commit 
all of their engineers to both drivers, to both cars? How does it work with the team dynamic, but you've got an individual driver? Yeah, so Formula One's a really unique sport in the sense that your teammate, so the per- the two people on the team, your teammate is the one that you want to beat the most. So he's your, actually your biggest rival. So when you're getting mm. into the heat of a championship battle, your team divides quite a lot. So you have your your driver's engineers and the other driver's engineers. But normally they work in harmony to make the car as be- the best that it possibly can be. It makes sense because I guess the, or the way I see it, the way I imagine it is that, yeah, like the, the person you're being compared to the most, it's such an exclusive sport, so competitive. Your teammate. If your teammate keeps beating you and then there's an up and coming driver, you'll be the one who's going to be chopped. So Exactly. I can it's imagine. It's such a competitive sport. And so, as you were saying, when it gets into like the heat of a title fight or yeah, like a, a really up and coming driver is going to come in and they're trying to choose between the two, which one's going to go. Um, I can imagine that even though they're technically teammates, you've got a massive rivalry against them. But that must mean that sometimes if the stars align, I can imagine the narrative is really fun to yeah. watch those seasons. Exactly. Has that happened recently? Or Yes. So um, in fact, in Mercedes, the best team, it was really interesting because for three seasons in a row, it was Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg. They were both on the same team. Mercedes were far and away better than everyone else. And they were competing for the championship, those two. And that created, it was so toxic, it created a massive team divide. But it was even more, it, it created an even more of an interest because Lewis Hamilton and Nico Rosberg were bitter rivals karting as well when they were karting, when they were like really? 14, 15 oh. years old. And, and now they're, they're on the same, same team. team. They're oh. on the same Against team. Against each other. Exactly. And Nico, and so basically Lewis Hamilton uh, won the championship in 2014 and 2015 against Nico Rosberg, but Nico Rosberg won in 2016. And he said that the stress of Lewis Hamilton being his teammate caused him to retire as soon as he won no because way. he didn't want to compete anymore against him. That's how good Lewis Hamilton is. He literally forced his teammate to retire. <laughs> after. Uh, so, because I remember following it um, to a degree that in those years, um, so was it 2014 and 15 where there were really close title fights? 2014, 2014 and 2016 were very, very close. 2015 was Hamilton dominated quite a lot more. But it, again, we'll go into this later, but it was so mental between mm. those guys. The only reason why Nico Rosberg got the best of Hamilton mainly is because he he out he got to his level mentally. And no other driver has really been able to compete with Lewis Bensley because Lewis knows that he's the best. He's got so much confidence going into mm. every race weekend, knowing that he'll beat those guys. And it, he's backed it as well. For, in Mercedes, in the space of... In, it's his... It's his eighth year in Mercedes. So he started in 2013 and then the turbo hybrid era started in 2014. He's won 74 races since 2014. That is over half. Over half to 20 guys entering each race. So there's been about 140, 445 races and Hamilton's won 74 of those on his own. That's unbelievable. It's Considering there are 20 guys entering each race to win over half of them. Exactly. He's accounting for... When you win a championship season, normally you win about a quarter of the races that year. Like maybe maybe a third, but normally a quarter. But Hamilton consistently has won half. So I mean, so of the modern era, he's, especially in the last few years, he's been by far the most dominant. Yes. Um, has it always been like that with, uh, you know, you're saying that Mercedes now are by far the best team. What about in the past? Because I think one team that everyone associates with Formula One is Ferrari. Mm. What if you could give us like a two or three minute overview of the teams in Formula One? You could go from like the start in the 50s mm. and take up today. And which were the dominant teams? Which teams have been always around? Ferrari is the only team that has always been around since its, since its genesis in 1950. And Ferrari have had, actually had quite a turbulent time in Formula One in terms of its success. It's come in, it's come in like clumps or like clusters almost. So they compete in the 50s and they're, pretty successful they won two uh, three world titles in the 1950s and then um in the 60s they uh won one or two 
In the 70s, they won uh, three. And then in the 80s and the 90s, they didn't win any. But then in the 2000s, Michael Schumacher joined in 1996. And then from 2000 to 2004, Ferrari dominated the sport. They won mm. five world titles in a row. The Constructors, which is the team championship and the Drivers' Championship. So Ferrari have been in the sport for 70 years. And another top team is McLaren. They joined in the 60s, in the early 60s. And a McLaren British. McLaren, well, it was, they are a British team, but they were founded by Bruce McLaren, who's actually from New Zealand. Oh. Um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it's mad, isn't it? Um, it's very cool. And it's quite cool because it started from him when he was in a chicken farm and he had a garage and, um, and he was just like... Screw it! I'm just gonna make I'm just gonna make, make a Formula One car. Cars. Gonna make super car. But, that, yeah. but that's how non-exclusive Formula One was back then. Anyone could take part because there was no money involved. Does that, yeah, does you that don't make really sense? see New Zealand as like the pinnacle of like mm, exactly. automotive engineering. Mm, that's insane. Mm. But another top team are Williams, and they joined in 1980. Okay, so uh, they joined or, a bit later, or in the late 70s. Mm. Yeah, um, and they've they've been very successful as well. They've won seven constructors' titles, six drivers' titles. But now they're the worst team at the moment. Unfortunately. So, <laughs> yeah. so what's the difference between the constructors and the individual titles? So the constructors is the team championship. So it's the accumulation of both of your driver's points going into a team championship. And that's the one that the team wants to win because that's where the money's distributed mm. after every year. So if you come oh. first, then you'll get X amount of money. I'm not sure. I think it's like 200 million or something, probably way more. But if you come like fifth, you'll probably only get like 40 million. So... So there's an incentive of the team. Exactly. That's the that's the main incentive. But obviously the drivers are very individual. They're very competitive. They they obviously want to win the drivers' championship first and foremost. So okay, how about in terms of then the structure of the championship? Um, I know we need to go back to the teams, um, but just quickly. So twenty races a year, and you said that the constructors' championship is the combination of both teammates' points. Mm. How are the points distributed? So the points are distributed. If Firstly, you have to finish in the top 10 to score a point. 20 drivers, currently 20 drivers compete. The top 10 get uh, finishing the points. So if you finish 10th, you get one point. 9th, two points. 8th, you get four points. 7th, six points. 6th, eight points. 5th, 10 points. 4th, 12 points. 3rd, 15 points. 2nd, 18 points. And then 1st, 25 points. And then those score, uh, those, like, however many points they all add up after the X amount of races, mm. so 20. In this case, it's 23 races this year. So whoever has the most points after 23 races wins the championship. It's a few hundred points. Yeah, normally between 300 and 420. Will win you the championship. Yeah. Okay, and so, and then as you said, the combination of the two teammates' points. Yeah, the constructors. Which team was the best team overall, which has the best car. That's like a reflection of who exactly. made the best car using the formula. Using exactly. Using Formula One. Exactly. Okay, so that's super interesting. So now now going back to the team. So we talked about Ferrari. Where are they from? Italy, Italy right? And then you've got, okay, McLaren, who are kind of technically Kiwi, but a British team. They are a British team. Williams, where are they based? Britain. Nice. They're British as well. Oh. Yeah, Britain, well, Formula One was invented in Britain. So well, was, I thought it was Italian for some reason. No, it's a British sport. Ah. Yeah, I see it as Italian, just because you think like, Italian supercars and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Ferrari. But, yeah, the first race was actually in Silverstone. The first mm. ever race in Formula One. Okay, so Britain's kind of like the... Britain's like the pinnacle, or like it's where it's the roots of Formula 1. It's yeah. like the Brazil of football, although mm-hmm. we've found kind football of, as well. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> like, terrible analogy. Yeah, terrible. Are, are there any American teams? There have, been, there have been American teams, but none of them have been like good enough to w- even compete to win a championship, no. So, um, Japanese? Uh, Toyota. Think, yeah, Toyota. Toyota competed in, in Formula 1. Respect. Um, they, were, they weren't that successful. Oh. They competed in the early 2000s. <laughs> That's what competed. 
yeah. But uh, the Japanese have been engine construct uh, engine suppliers, so oh. Honda. And Honda are actually one of the like the OGs in form, like they're one of the coolest engine suppliers. So they're the ones just making the money by producing yeah. the engines so and cool. stuff. So a lot of the cars you see day to day in real life, they have. It must be quite a good advert for your car if you've got a Formula One team. You know, like I don't know that this comes from the same it's company. It's marketing. It's marketing. Oh, I can see it's why so much money is involved. Nowadays, it's more about money. Even like the the drivers that you have, that it'd be favorable to have the, a driver from the nationality of the team because then it would get, generate more money, more sponsors. Mm. So for example, there's an Italian driver called Antonio Giovinazzi. In my opinion, he's not amazing in Formula One, but he drives for Alfa Romeo, who are an Italian team. He gets in so many Italian sponsors. So mm. he, he draws in money for the team and they're quite a poor team. That makes sense. So I mean, that, that's the that's the modern day aspect of it that you were talking about. Exactly. Are there any other, for someone who doesn't know anything about Formula One, um, for them to know those main teams, are there any other teams in history that people should just really know about, you know, like quite Mercedes. So Mercedes. Mercedes. And that's not the same as McLaren? No. Okay. Mercedes can uh, supply the engines for McLaren, but Mercedes are also their own team. Does that make sense? So... They're like supplying the engines to their own competitor. Right. Yes. So basically at the start of the year, Mercedes will say, here you go, guys, you pay for the engine. So you give us the money for it. You, but you develop it in the way that you want to. And we're going to do it in our own way. Kind of depends on how much money you have, the engineers that you've got. And but, then they um, just put the parts together. They do it all oh, themselves. Okay. So they develop it themselves. But um, yeah, Mercedes are one of the most successful teams in Formula One as well. But they, they've got a really weird history. So they competed in the 1950s. They stopped in after 1955 and then they just all of a sudden came back in 2010. But they've been running the show for the past seven years, seven mm, or eight years. Mm. They've been really successful. Already, I mean, because you said that it's been Hamilton and Rosberg. When was the last time it wasn't Hamilton or Rosberg? Was it 2013? Yes. Well, Rosberg retired at the end of 2016. So mm-hmm. it's really just been Hamilton since 2014 minus 2016. And in terms of like Mercedes have been the best team since 2013, right? Uh, yeah, since, 20, since 2014. Since 2014. Mercedes, Mercedes were the best team, yes. Okay, and so already at this point, where are they in like the historical rankings of best teams, would you say? what's the the Is there like a consensus on what the greatest team is? The greatest team is Ferrari in Formula 1. They've, they're the most successful. They've won 15 constructors' titles, or 16 constructors' titles, 15 drivers' titles. So they are the best. And then McLaren have also been very successful. I think they've won eight... Uh, constructors titles and 12 drivers titles mm. and then Williams as I said they've won six uh, drivers titles seven constructors titles so they're very successful and so Mercedes are already but like- Mercedes have won seven uh, eight they've won eight eight constru- uh, eight drivers titles and seven constructors titles wow. because the constructors championship was um, ge- like generated or made uh, formed in 1958 Okay, okay, that makes sense. So they're already like a historical team now. They're already, this recent run has already propelled them to like glory. Yeah. Okay, and are they, a, are they a German team, like Mercedes or? Mercedes are a German team, yes. Okay, so they that are. has to, so the German national anthem has played. Yeah, at the at, on the podiums. In fact, I think it's quite funny. I think it was like two years in succession, the German national anthem was played on the podium <laughs> at the end of a race because it was a, either a German driver or a German constructor winning the race. Oh, I see. So at the end of every race, they'll play the national anthem of the winning driver and the national anthem of the winning constructor. Yeah. And so in each, what about if it was like Nico Rosberg, who's German, winning it? It would just be the German. <laughs> they wouldn't play it twice. In a row. They just listen to it. They're constantly hearing it. Yeah. I know it now because of that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, do you have a, what you going to say? Something? Yeah, I was going to ask about the circuits and stuff. What what are the main circuits or like the most... The most famous circuits. Yeah, and the most interesting ones to watch. 
the 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 most famous ones to date are Monaco, um, Spa, Spa Francorchamps, which is in Belgium, uh, Monza, which is in Italy, and mm. Silverstone, which is in England. Those are like the those are the big ones. They have the most history because they've been around in Formula One since it's, since it started pretty much. Um, there's another really cool track called the Nurburgring or the Nordschleife, oh. and that's in Germany. And uh, it's a 16 mile long track. It's composed of 180 corners. And it's to do a lap there, it takes about seven or eight minutes. Um, it's, it's unbelievable. Every year, it's quite, it's quite sad, but like from the 50s when it, when it started, uh, every year a driver would die there because it's, that's just how dangerous it was. It was just so dangerous. Yeah. Oh, man. To be fair, like the implication, like in, with safety in Formula One, it's really, really improved since 1950 because essentially they were literally driving in trolleys with no seatbelts and they were going, they were cruising at like 170 miles an hour around a track mm-hmm. and they were literally wearing buckets on their heads as helmets and just sunglasses. So if they crash, they are the crumple zone. They're, they're going to die. So was that a common thing back then? So, was, I mean, you mentioned that the Nürburgring people would die, but how about in other tracks? Was it normal on a race day for someone to pass away? Yeah. The drivers would go in the mindset with the mindset that this could be their last race so easily. They'd, I, there was a documentary and, um, James Hunt, who was the 1976 Formula One world champion, uh, he said, I'd go, before every race, I'd uh, go and like, say to my family, like, this could be the last time I see you guys. So it's, it's incredible how much they put on the line. They literally put their lives on the line to do this. And compared to these days, the safety is so much better there. The safety's improved so much, yeah. The last death was Jules Bianchi? Jules it? Bianchi in the 2014 Japanese Grand Prix. That was very unfortunate, to be fair. Mm. Very, very unfortunate. And that was the first death for 20 Since years? Since Ayrton Senna in 1994. Okay. Okay, so the safety is a lot better. I want to go quickly back to the different tracks because I think that's a really important element. Mm. And me as sort of like a passive fan, that's something I quite enjoy. The fact that each track is different, isn't it? So you'd expect, so that each track will suit different teams differently and different exactly. drivers really differently. Like Very in tennis with different surfaces, kind of. Kind, Yeah, except it's it's the rotation is so much quicker. In tennis, you have obviously, you have a month, a two month period of, of a season on the same surface. Whereas in Formula One, you're just going to a completely new track and it suits different drivers as you, uh, different teams, as you said. So, for example, Spa, Italy, they're very power unit and engine dependent uh, circuits. So the teams with the best engines are going to perform much better. And with the best braking performance, they'll perform much better at those tracks. Why? What's that track like in very basic terms? Is there a lot of cornering? Is there a lot of chance to get to top speed? It's just the, those two tracks that have the fastest average speeds. So they have lots of straights. Mons is actually known as the Temple of Speed. That's his, that's his nickname. And the two, the two major components that you need is low downforce, massive high engine performance there, mm-hmm. and really good braking performance. Oh, because downforce is going to slow you down. Exactly. If you have increased drag, increased downforce, it's going to it's going to slow you down on the straights. So, a team with a like, is there a current team, for example, that's really powerful on the straights? Mercedes. Mercedes have the best engine. Mercedes and Honda have the two best engines. It's interesting. So, going back to different tracks suit different teams more. In 2018 and 19, Ferrari, they had the best engine by, by a long way. They're about three, four tenths faster than any other team on the straights. So in places like Spa and Monza, they were so much better than others, but their cornering speed was so was not nowhere near as good. So it's really interesting because, so for example, in Belgium, in sector one, so each track is, is divided into three sectors. In sector ones and sector three in Belgium, Ferrari were way quicker. But in sector two, which was more cornering, they would lose about eight, nine tenths compared to Mercedes. So it's very, very interesting. Yeah, I, I just brought up something 
regarding the Nurburgring when you were talking about it and Tesla. Do you know what the what how you know even these supercars like Lamborghinis and just these yeah. super road cars? How fast do they usually get on the Nurburgring? Nowadays, yeah. Well, it's very different um, nowadays compared to how it was in the in the seventies in Formula One. Now they they can do it about in the mid five minute thirties, I think. So like five really? minutes, five minutes thirty five around around the Nurburgring up to six minutes, I think. Um, but back in the back in the seventies in Formula One, they'd be doing it in seven minutes. So, but that's because the downforce was so much less. So the evolution of like road cars and and supercars is just so advanced compared to how it was back then. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to mention is regarding Tesla. So the Tesla uh, Plaid Model S is coming out sometime this year, probably early next year or something. I, I'm not really keeping up with the production mm. process, but it's basically just a supercharged Model S. And the Model S is basically a family car. It's designed yeah. to be a family, you know, luxury family sedan type car. But it's not to 60. Elon Musk says is probably going to be around 1.96 seconds. I mean, that's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And for an electric car, if you consider the weight, like you're talking about weight and being as light as possible, the Model S, because they're electric cars, huge battery packs, really low center of gravity, though, they're, they're like over a ton, a ton and a half kind of thing. And I think in one of their latest test runs, they got a sub seven minute lap on the wow. ring for an electric car i think that's just a massive engineering feat that, that is that is huge maybe one day you'll see well i mean it would defeat the point in a way of like the the nature of formula one to have an electric that's just outperforming on everyone else yeah, yeah I, I suppose the main difference is just weight yeah formula one cars nowadays are pretty heavy though they're because you have to carry 150 kilos of fuel they're much longer as well and they're, and just, they're so much more complicated. There's so much more components to an F1 car than there used to be. There is Formula E, right? Yes. That's electric. That's electric, yeah. Well, what's that like in comparison? It's just boring. It's like, not... It's just dead silent. There's just no money. There's nowhere near as much money invested oh. into it. The cars don't go nearly as quickly. In my opinion, it's uh, the rejects of Formula 1 that, get, that go to <laughs> no Formula way. E. Like who? Luca, <laughs> like Lu- Lucas Degrassi, Nelson Piquet Jr. Like they all got thrown out of Formula 1. In fact, Nelson Piquet Jr. is pretty peak. Because um, he actually got, uh, he's never allowed to race in Formula 1 again for cheating. No way. So, um, <laughs> so Formula E was like, fine, we'll take yeah, him. Yeah, we'll take him then. <laughs> no, just like a, that's a bad advert for it. I mean, it's the, the what I love about each sport is when you factor in the most important, like um, you have to think about the most important factors that will determine success in that sport. So you can think about in a lot of sports, athleticism, resources, the nature of like the pitch or the court or whatever it is. Um, and then the psychological element. And in Formula One, what what are the so that you've got the car, you've got so many really important elements in my opinion. You've got the car, the driver, the track. Those all literally will determine the mm. success of a race, right? Yes. So uh yeah, I mean in a sec I want to talk about the, the tracks a bit more because I think it's a really important feature yeah. in Formula One. Um were you gonna would you wanna add anything to what I just said? I was gonna say yes, the driver and the track and uh, the car is obviously so essential in Formula One, but I think just as much of it comes down to mentals. Your, your like your mentality. One of the reasons why Nico Rosberg beat Lewis Hamilton in 2016, as I said earlier, was that he didn't let Lewis Hamilton get to him mentally. Lewis Hamilton's greatness managed to, like alone, manages to get him a mental advantage over his competitors. But Nico Rosberg didn't allow that to overcome him. How did he not allow that? On the track, for example, he was just so aggressive on track. He would not let Lewis Hamilton get his own way, like how he normally would with, with other teammates. He'd firstly he'd beat him fair and square in some races. He was really really good. He was really quick. Yeah. So for example, in the 2016 Spanish Grand Prix, like Lewis Hamilton was going to go for an overtake on Nico Rosberg, but Nico Rosberg was so aggressive on the defense that he didn't let him go, and that forced a crash in the end. To be fair, 
But um, that's just an example of how Nico Rosberg didn't budge. Mm, to get, he, didn't allow, he didn't allow Lewis Hamilton to beat him or get get to him. And it's so interesting with the mental side of it. Nico Rosberg in 2016 got a new new helmet to shed about, I think it was like 300 grams. And then in one qualifying session, it's really interesting. Him and Lewis, it was in the 2016 Japanese Grand Prix. Him and Lewis Hamilton were neck and neck throughout the whole weekend. And in, Jap- and in Japan, track position is so important. If you get pole position, you're on the clean side of the track. You're going to get a better start than the guy in second place. And it was between them two for first and second. So what Nico Rosberg did was that he took off his socks. He cut off his socks, which were pretty heavy, but like he took not not even that heavy. So they're like two hundred, like a hundred grams. Took off those socks, and that saved him thirty milliseconds around a five six kilometer track. And that was and those were the thirty milliseconds that he needed to outqualify Lewis Hamilton in that race, and he won. That he race. won because of that. So because of that, yeah. Those those margins. Those fine margins with the helmet having a two hundred gram lighter helmet, a one hundred gram lighter pair of socks, managed socks. To, managed to eke out literally thirty milliseconds. My man did a full race. Yeah, <laughs> with, with the half socks. Yeah, or whatever. it's it's unreal. It's just unreal. <laughs> that was the grind to beat Lewis Hamilton. And, and, wow. And um, I think you touched upon something else which will be really important to go over in this episode, which is qualifying so at the start you talked about how there's a whole race weekend how does it work throughout a race weekend because you, you arrive at the race but how does that work i mean how do you line up on the grid so it's composed it's composed into like three sections you've got friday practice and friday practice for for an average f1 fan they might just think that they're going joyriding around a track for three hours but that's completely not the case at all friday practice is designed for setting up the car for the race and for qualifying to get the best setup how much brake bias do i need how much front wing do i need how much engine power do i need on this straight it's so the teams can collect as much data as possible to enhance their performance as much as they can on saturday and sunday where it really counts so that's friday saturday is qualifying so qualifying is composed of three sections, uh, three like qualifying sessions, Q1, Q2, and Q3. And Q1 eliminates the slowest five drivers. Q2 eliminates the next slowest five drivers. And then Q3 is a top 10 shootout. And then whoever finishes in the top 10, that's the, just, that's just the order of the for the grid for Sunday. And it's very, very, very tactical. So you want to be on pole position in Formula 1 because, as I said, as I touched on earlier, if you're on pole position, you're on the clean side of the track. And the clean side of the track is where the drivers take the optimal lines. So it's got the most grip. And on second place is the dirty side of the track because that's where all the dead tyre rubber's going. It's all the dust is. Mm. So you're not going to get as good a start as the guy Mm. on the clean side of the track. So for somewhere like, for example, this is really interesting. So Valtteri Bottas is Lewis Hamilton's current teammate. And in Russia in 2020, he intentionally qualified third so he'd get a better start in the race because he didn't want to be second because he'd more likely get a, a bad start. So he intentionally let the guy, Max Verstappen, go in second so he could get into third and get a better slipstream. So is that because of the arrangement of the cars on the grid? How does it yeah. work with that? So you just got two, you got, it's essentially like two lanes. So you got first, third, fifth, seventh, going down to 19th on one side and then second, which is behind first, second, fourth, sixth, eighth, going down to 20th. And when you say seconds behind first, it's not directly it's, behind, No, it? it's not, it's not. So you've got first on the left side, second, eight metres behind first on the right-hand side, third, eight metres behind second on the left-hand side, okay. going down to 20th. Okay. So it's and like a zigzag almost. That makes sense. And then, as you said, so it's essentially two lanes. And so Bottas preferred to go on the same side as first place. And yeah. even though he was eight metres behind. The, he, 16 he was... metres behind rather than eight metres behind. 
yeah, that makes sense. And he he thinks that, but being relatively eight meters behind second place is actually worth it for being on the clean side of the track. Exactly. That's worth eight meters. Exactly. Because remember when I said, if you have a better start, you can gain up to like 20, 20 meters, 30 meters on the track mm. uh, at the end of the straight. That's why. Those How did it go? He won the race. Okay, no there you go. So would the team be involved in making that decision or did he just kind of do that? That was all him. Just that was all him. It's kind of, it's kind of sly because he, what he did in that qualifying session was... So he, he kind of hid it. He didn't tell the team, exactly. okay, I'm just going to come... But that's the sort of mental attitude that he needs to beat Lewis Hamilton. Mm. To go against team orders, to, to be really it's not selfish. Confident mentality. Yeah, you yeah. need to be selfish though. You need to be selfish. And especially Lewis Hamilton runs that team. Like he, he is the guy. So to go against him and to, to do something yourself, even though that's against team orders, that will gain Hamilton's respect more because you can't walk all over him for after that. Man, that, that, that's an alpha move. It is. It is yeah. <laughs> it's a shame he's not that good. But like, oh, man. <laughs> How good is he compared to Hamilton? He's pretty quick. Like he's, he's, slow, he's about a tenth slower on average, but in the races, Hamilton's just on a class on his own. Mm, he's okay. so good. His fitness is unbelievable. His race pace is unbelievable. It, it, no one can really keep up. So in a minute, I think it'll be good to talk about the greatest drivers. Yeah. We haven't actually touched upon that too much yet. But before we go onto that, just one more time, I want to go back to the tracks because um, as you can see, I, I like talking about them. Yeah. Um, so you said the four OG tracks are Silverstone, Monaco, Spa and Monza. Yes. Um, those are the four, Euro four of the European tracks. Yeah. What are the other legendary tracks? Because I can imagine on your resume as a driver to say you've won at certain races is really cool. Yeah, of the current tracks or... All time, any awesome tracks. I think Suzuka, if you win in Japan, that's that's a really historic place because it's got such incredible history. It's where the most title fights have been in the last 20, 20 30 years. Yeah, I think winning there, and it's such a technical track. It's, it's the driver's, one of the driver's favorite tracks because it's so technical. It really separates the most technically gifted drivers from the not so technically gifted. And so that's a Japanese one. And also Brazil, I think. Interlagos. Interlagos, yeah. Again, it's got so much history. Um, but it's also a really cool track. So okay. the drivers really like like winning there as well. And so those are, what about, those are like classic stadium like tracks, yeah. right? What about the street circuits? Because that's really cool as well. Yeah. So Mon Monaco is a street track and that's why it's really cool. As far, it's the most historic. It's been around since the 50s and they just go around Monaco, cruising around Monaco in a, in a Formula One car. It's called the Principality Grand Prix. Like it's, it is the best. Um, but there's also places like Singapore, uh, which is really cool. It's a night race. It's the first ever night race in Formula One in 2008. Um, and yeah, it's got a really cool layout, street layout. How, how is the dynamic different at night? It's not too different, to be fair. It's, it's, it's a cooler spectacle. It's a much greater spectacle. Is it like floodlit and everything? Yeah, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. fine. Yeah, yeah, it's completely floodlit. But they don't have lights on their car, do they? No, they don't yeah, have lights. I was going to say, like, no, no headlights. The wait, they'd not be happy with that. <laughs> no, yeah. definitely not. They'd probably make some new kind of light technology yeah. or something, weightless lights. Maybe exactly. that's what we need Pure to do photon to emission. advance the human race. Is yeah. Like come up with a new rule. Like, we need headlights on a Formula One car. They'll make the most optimized headlights yeah. possible. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I guess that's the whole transition of technology. It always starts like, you know, in the space program and now we use the internet or in wars they use, yeah. Oh, I have to ask like this. I don't know if it's just pop. Like, um, I don't know if it's not true. Could a Formula One car in a tunnel, does it have enough downforce to go upside down? Yes. That's it crazy. It does, yes. To, to stay upside down. To, to completely go up, stay upside down, yeah. No way. It's because... Oh, like it's because basically a Formula One car pushes so much air above it that there's pretty, such a low amount of going under the car that it can just go upside down completely. It's incredible. Can, can you find videos of that? Yes, you oh, can. Oh man, I'm gonna have to find. Yeah, some of those. it's fascinating. So it's really cool. 
Okay, I, I'm pretty happy now um, in terms of knowing the biggest and best Ooh, tracks. Wait, wait, wait. Oh. One, one thing about the tracks. This is a different point, though. Yeah. So yeah. there are, what, 20, 20 races in the year? 23 this year. Uh, okay. And these are all, each race is done on a different track. So 23 yes. different circuits. Yeah. Different continents. So yeah. these drivers are going through the whole time shift, tight, like yeah. you know, jet lag. They and have to arrive well. there a few days early. Yeah, but a few it. days and stuff. And well, it, I guess it depends on the distance of the time zones. In the Europe, so in the European season, which generally spans from early May to beginning of September, there's obviously not that much of a time difference, up to like two, three hours. Oh, right. Okay. So they do it continents at a time. Yeah. Okay, so you got, fine. But then like, like the Asian... No, no, normally normally they get that's part of the reason why they give two weeks to get all the transport over there for the cars yeah. but also for the wow. drivers to adjust do they do that in planes yeah oh my gosh the money yeah moving that they, sort of but, car. well not in planes to get over the continent so like going from like britain to canada or like monaco to canada which is actually two sequence uh, sequence of races they obviously have to get a plane there but if you're going from monaco to belgium they have trucks which just go along the motorways. Driving along the motorway, the Formula yeah, One. Yeah, like, you, haven't you seen the cars? pressure? Like for not the pressure yeah, for not yeah, crashing. Yeah. <laughs> like imagine if you crashed that. Like, oh my it's like god! Millions of that. Those oh my god! It's probably like the best truck drivers in the world. Yeah. they're like the um, they're like really famous ones. Wait, so because the cars are so expensive and obviously insanely difficult to engineer, what happens if you do crash it? Like within two weeks, you don't just get another one. It's, it, the, these are the finest engineers in the world. So um, they can just spit out another one that quick. Well, I'm assuming they have stocks. They, right? they mend it. They mend it. Uh, so if you crash a Formula One car on Saturday qualifying and need for race day, the engineers will just stay up all night Oh my god! To it. fix it, that, that's to really replace cool everything. Way. So yeah. they've got. I wonder if they just stay up anyway, though, because they're probably just stressing out, optimizing so much before the race. Like the, the chief engineers must be just doing all nighters yeah. using the data that so you're talking about. Quite a lot of people will probably have to put all nighters. But what if the engine is like totaled? Like if it's completely written off, they'll have another one just in case. They have. They always have a couple of spares. But if you can salvage it, then that's the uh, that's the ideal way because yeah. you get penalized if you have to get a new engine. Oh, you really? get like a 10, 10 15 uh, place grid penalty. For the race, if you... oh, what about um, gearboxes and stuff? Gearbox, exactly. So for every year, you have a finite amount of engines and gearboxes that you can go through. I think it's three engines, four gearboxes, five, four, uh, three power units um, that oh, you can so go you through. Can't just a... come in with a fresh one each nope, time. No, you can't. This or is like, like every an engineer's other. paradise dream, like game. Yeah, sort of, they like, must be in some weird kind of like flow state when they're doing that kind of stuff. It's That's unbelievable. Uh, so you can imagine how frustrated they get their drivers when like on qualifying, they just total their car and they expect the engineers to just sort it yeah. engineers to sort it out the more the more questions you answer the more questions i have there's another thing which i think would be important to learn about which would be the most because there are so many different elements to a formula one success a driver's success apart from the drivers who are the other most important people in a team the team principal probably so the team principal what does that person do team principal essentially runs the team he, he, he calls the shots for like the strat he employs all the best people the best engineers, the drivers, he, he sorts out who comes into this, like the drivers that come in, like they are the, he is the main guy, but so like in football, man. like the manager. Yeah. He's boss man. Tactics. He is boss man. But, um, in the races, the strategists are really important. It's like a game of chess in a race because then you, we, we haven't even talked about tires yet. Tire life. Tires are so important in an F1 race. You want to go through the least amount of pit stops as you possibly can to, um, because in, in the pits, it costs you about 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. But really sometimes crazy. if you're behind a driver who's killing your tires, um, then you want to, you might want to go in two laps before him so you can get an under what they, they call it an undercut because then you're going to go out for those extra two laps. You're going to be on completely fresh tires and you're going to go seconds faster than the guy in front and mm -hmm. you could end up ahead of him. 
So you've got to, it's so, it's so strategic as well during the races. Do you get penalized for tires or not? You get penalized, well, like if he's put on the wrong tires, so like two, two, like soft compound tires and two hard compound tires that's so illegal how long does it take to change a tire two seconds to, cha- to change four tires to get four tires off and four tires yeah. on it or takes, all of them being done simultaneously it takes two seconds to change four tires on a formula one car how can two seconds just zero how, how many bolts are there on two. the car Probably. it's just one it's just one gun but like not like gun yeah. but like to a change bolt gun to, to, yeah thing, bolt yeah. gun essentially but they have like 20 people managing like the changing of the tires. So you have one front jackman who's lifting, propelling the car up, one rear jackman. And then you've got like three or four people on each tire, making sure that it's on and off properly. Oh it's, it's incredible. Yeah, can you imagine like Formula One tire not put on properly? You're just bonging it down It's happened 200. before. It's happened before. Oh, man. It's happened before. It's, it's really wow. scary, but normally it doesn't, it only takes like three or four seconds to like work Realize, it out. Yeah. yeah. And then it's like, yeah, the but drivers. then what happens? Because three or four seconds, you're like going off into the track. no, because, well, not not normally because um, you have to go down the pits as well. Like, yeah. And then so, normally then you realise like, oh man, my tyre's not so even... So you have to like reverse back? You or? can't, it's illegal. You just have to retire. You just stop the race. You can't, oh, you can't wow. carry on. That's, that's peak. It's so peak. In Formula 1, reversing in the pit lane is highly illegal. You get you get disqualified <laughs> straight. even reverse? Yes, they do oh, have they a reverse okay, gear. Fine. But it really does like mess up the engine. It screws it up quite a lot. So it's really not ideal to do that. What about the different weather conditions in a race then? Because you touched upon it then, like you've got different types of tyres for different conditions. Yeah. How many different um, conditions do they factor in? Well, any, like literally every, not not snow because it never really snows. Sorry, and what I mean, I didn't word it very well, is like you, how many different sets of tyres can you have for different conditions? Right, so you have hard compound, medium compound, soft compound. The hard compound is the most durable, has the most durable tyre life, but it has the least grip if that makes sense. So you're going to go around the track slower than someone on the soft tires, but you're going to stay on those tires for longer. Medium compound is medium tire life, medium grip. And then on soft compound, you burn through the rubber faster. So you have high grip at the start, but you have a reduced tire life. Okay. And so in which conditions would you be using though? Like, why would you want to use a hard compound tire then, for example? If you were to use a hard, if you wanted to use a hard compound tire in a race, it would be because you want to stay out on the track as long as possible without having to go into the pit. So you've stocked up on fuel and like you, you plan they to don't not change do fuel anymore. So you have, you just have one tank of fuel in the race. Ah. So the drivers have to manage themselves how much fuel they're using. What if they, because so I'm sure that fuel has to be calculated then to run out basically on the last lap. Almost. Yeah, it's happened before. It's happened so, before. Ayrton Senna ran out of fuel a couple of laps before the end of the 1985 San Marino Grand Prix and he was in like second place. What did he do? Just take the L? He just took the L. But that's his fault because he didn't, he didn't manage his fuel properly throughout mm. the race. So he was using too much fuel. Yeah. Um, and then what about when it's raining though? Like are there other tires for that? Yeah, there's intermediates for, and there's, there's, so there's two, yes, intermediates and wets. Wets is for like severe, severe rain. Um, and it's actually kind of mad. A Formula One tire goes through, I think 500 litres of uh, water in like two seconds, I think on a straight. So it, no it like rinses through like 500 litres of water in two seconds for the... How big is the tread on that? It's huge. And then on the intermediates, it's interchanging like weather conditions. So you've got wet, like it's pretty wet, but not com- not completely submerged in water, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, but normally I think there's only like one or two wet races a year. It's not very common, but the wet, it's quite interesting. The wet weather really separates the super talented Formula One drivers from the not so naturally gifted. So that's the why best ones? Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen are just the two most established wet drivers. Okay. So in the, it's, it's mad. In the 2008 British Grand Prix, 
Lewis Hamilton, it was a completely wet race. Lewis Hamilton finished a minute and 20 ahead of the guy in second place. 80 seconds. What on earth? So that's that averaging a second a lap faster, a second and like a half a lap faster. How? It's just, it's just natural ability. I couldn't tell you how, but he's just, like, he picks out the lines better. He has, he has a much better feel for the car. Like he's just got a much greater natural, heightened natural ability compared to other, other drivers. And that's what separates him so much. So, yeah. But Max Verstappen as well, who's another up and coming. How old is he? 23. He's mad. He started racing when he was 16 in Formula One. 16 years old. So he's in a veteran Formula in Formula One. What? That's before he, you can have a driver's yeah, license. Yeah, he got he got a Formula One license before he got a driver's How license. How is that? One. It's like mad. you go to the DVLA, they're like, yeah, no, it's just like I'm just one of the best drivers in the world. Yeah. Did he have a road license? <laughs> no, he didn't. He literally had a super license before he had a road Man license. Can barely drive a moped yeah. illegally. <laughs> he's, it's, it's unreal. And he won his first Formula One race when he just turned 18. So he's like, <laughs> That's basically when he was in like sixth form, essentially. Yeah, he was in year 13 and he, and he, and he was just out there winning races. Wow. He's unbelievable. Do you think he will be like taking on the legacy of I Lewis think Hamilton? he'll be the driver of Zero. Yes. It's very hard. It's very difficult to say who in Formula One is the greatest driver ever because the cars change so much. They evolve so much and so quickly. But you can go off who's the greatest driver of their, each of their eras. and Should look, go through them. Yeah. So in the 50s, it was... Juan Manuel Fangio who was an Argentinian driver he won about 46% of the races he took part in um, he just dominated he won five world titles and each and for he won, the, won those five world titles in four different teams which is really impressive mm. and then in the 60s it was Jim Clark he was the man he was the man of the 60s he drove for Lotus um, who don't race in Formula 1 anymore but they are a very historic team and then in the 70s it was Nicky Lauda he was probably the best of, best of that era and then in the 80s it was Ayrton Senna and Alain Prost. They were both so good and there were such contrasting personalities and they just clashed for two years. It was incredible. There are so many documentaries about their rivalry. They were the two greats of their era. Ayrton Senna won three world titles, but he died. He got killed in Formula One when he was 34 at his peak. And Alain Prost won four world titles. And then after that era, it was the Michael Schumacher era. He won seven world titles, 91 races, 155 podiums, 68 pole positions. He dominated the sport for 10 years. And then um, it's quite funny. So Fernando Alonso was the next guy coming up. He beat Michael Schumacher in the world championship. He was the heir to the throne. Mm. And he won the last two world championships in 2005 and six. And then here comes Lewis Hamilton, this guy who just completely spoils it for him mm. because he beat him in his first year. Hamilton beat Alonso in the same car in his first year. Oh, so racing. Alonso, so it's like Alonso's like the new guy on the block and everyone's like, so it's what we're talking about Verstappen now. Yeah. So it's like someone no, else. Alonso was established. He just won back-to-back world titles against Michael Schumacher. He just beat the statistically mm. the greatest driver of all time. He was the man of Formula One. And then in 2007, Lewis Hamilton comes in. On the same team. On the same team, in the same machinery, equal cars. And he just beats him, him in the, oh in the whole season as well. The rookie. How old was he? 20, Hamilton was 22 and Alonso was 26. Okay, so the rookie comes in and beats the reigning world champion. And then it's just the Hamilton era. But then, um, so it's the Hamilton era from 2014 to 2021. Or like tw- to now. He's won... He's, achieved so much he's won 97 races in formula one been on the been on the podium 170 times he's been on the been on pole 98 times wow he's got 54 fastest laps or something like that he's just, he's got the most points in f1 history statistically he is the greatest driver ever statistically so he's got the joint most world titles right yeah and he's Seven. got the most wins most poles most everything else and so um just in between 
his rise to absolute greatness. So he won his first world championship in 2008, right? With McLaren, yes. But then what happened between his first world championship and then his like tearing off? It was kind of unfortunate. So from 2010 to 2013, Red Bull had just had simply the best car and they and they had the best team around them as well. Hamilton, how in those times, Hamilton, he described it himself. He said those were the years that he really matured in, in Formula One. He was quite immature because he didn't know how to manage the tyres during a race. He just tried to get from A to B as fast as possible. But that's not how you succeed. That's not how you win in Formula One. You have to preserve the tyres, think about like managing everything else, managing fuel at that time, managing the car. Like I don't like yeah, it was very like very te- was like teething years for him almost. And who was the best during that time with Red Bull? Sebastian Vettel. He won four world titles in a row. Okay, so that so I mean again, it's almost would it be right to say you know how what you're saying with Alonso, he took the the top and then Hamilton came along and then but then Vettel took it from Hamilton. The Vettel took it from Hamilton and then Hamilton took it back from Vettel and Hamilton and Vettel actually had two world title fights in 2017 and 2018. Those two guys, Vettel was driving for Ferrari, Hamilton was driving for Mercedes. Ferrari was arguably the faster car throughout those two years. But Hamilton's mental fortitude, his natural ability, him just being so great, he he managed to propel that car and win the race and win the titles both years. And uh, it's clear that you're um, well. I know personally that you're you're a fair. It's fair to say you're a Lewis Hamilton fan. Are there any um, are there any weaknesses that Hamilton has still? Any what would someone say who didn't like Lewis Hamilton? What would they argue against him for being the greatest? Uh, what would someone argue against him now for being for not so being the greatest? Right now, someone the said. Car. Okay, so they'd say that he. Because he has the be- he's had the best car for seven years. He's- that's the only reason why he's won the title. That's what an a anti-Lewis Hamilton fan would say as to why he's been so successful and why he's not the greatest. And what about a neutral who just happened to be, like, who happened to think that he wasn't the greatest? What What's another, like, weakness for Hamilton? Just because, I, I mean, personally, from what I know, I think Lewis Hamilton at this point is the greatest driver of all time. But what would be arguably a, a weakness that he's had throughout his career? Has, does he have an Achilles heel? At the moment, I genuinely don't think he has a weakness anymore because he's crafted his race. His race craft is genuinely perfect, I think. But that's because of the amount of mistakes that he made going into his going through his career. What was he's had to learn so much. For example, not managing his tires properly. He didn't do that. He was too aggressive on the on when he was racing, so he'd cause a lot of crashes. But nowadays, it's just, he's just so perfect. He just puts the car in the perfect positions. He brakes exactly when he needs to. He's he's so he's so gifted now. Like he's mm. he's so he's just so well crafted to race. And he's because he's so experienced. He's done this two hundred and sixty seven times. He just goes into every weekend following the same protocol. And I guess it is easier because he's got the best team around him. He's just got the most stability there. Mm. But that's that's credit to him as well because he he crafted that that like mountain, I don't know. Yeah, I get what you mean. Yeah. Uh, he earned he earned his, his points. Yeah, that makes sense. And from your observation, do you what do you think is potentially the weakest part of Hamilton's driving like, whether it be like conditions or certain track yeah types oh or... right so what 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 favors him best yeah that's that's partly down to the car hamilton's a very lewis hamilton's driving style it was described by jensen button is very unique he uses his hands and his feet in fact like so he uses the pedals as well as the steering wheel to modulate him around the corner if that makes sense so um and he's very very throttle aggressive like he's very throttle heavy so on like for, if he has a car with a lot of rear downforce or like rear stability, that's going to really help him. But if he if he's on like a much a car with much less rear downforce, so for example, this year there's been a regulation change which has meant that ten percent of the rear downforce has been cut compared to last year. So he has to adjust his driving style slightly. 
So probably he's going to have to put on less throttle coming out of the corners because if he puts too much, then he'll spin. But personally, I think Hamilton's be- Hamilton's best tracks are the ones where which involved the most like technical like, abilities. So like, lots of corners, like lots of long windy corners, um, not too many like long straights. Uh, yeah, basically, basically any and track. his racing craft as well is really good, like incredible. Because I remember when we'd watch him early on in his career, sometimes he would have sort of. Um, it would be like moments of immaturity if he'd like do, make a silly mistake, you know, and crash into someone or, yeah, uh, I don't know. I can imagine that um, or I can see that over time, yeah, he's eliminated all of those weaknesses almost. Yeah. And now he, how many years has he won in a row now? A race or a championship. Championships. Since four years in a row. So he's won four on the on the trot now. And he's okay. won six of the last seven. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, he, he's dominating. But anyway, we don't want to make this all about Lewis Hamilton. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, I, I don't mind, but <laughs> that would be the follow up episode. But um, yeah. So, uh, how about looking towards the future then of Formula One? Where do you see things going from here? Person, I think, I think it's looking better now. It's looking brighter now. There are some really, really good, like young prospects, young talents that are coming through. Not only Max Verstappen, for example, Charles Leclerc, George Russell, those guys, are, Lando Norris as well. Is Charles Leclerc dad quite. Charles Leclerc's dad his dad passed away of cancer his dad passed away of cancer four years ago the day before Charles Leclerc had a race in Formula 2 and he won that race which is incredible so he's really really good okay this is I feel I feel really bad but I'm 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 thinking of someone's a driver's dad who is a um, billionaire oh yeah Nikita Mazepin and Nicholas Latifi Oh, Both sorry. and Lance Stroll. This that's is, the one, Lance Stroll. This is what this the is. Dad's what, a billionaire. Multiple ones. So dad's a billionaire. It says a lot about like the how sport. hard it is. No, it's it's more it's more money driven now. So for example, Nikita Mazepin, he's not that good, but his dad owns the team, so his dad just gets him a seat. So it's very it's very exclusive. It's very favorable. So someone like Lewis Hamilton nowadays, if if you had like a Lewis Hamilton talent, he might not make it into F one because he doesn't have the money. It's very, it's very. Money. He came from like a, a more humble background. Very humble background. His dad had to work four jobs just to fund for his go karting, and he didn't have a mum at the time. So how how do you even stop? Because you know your kids just go around go karting and stuff. How do you see that? Hmm. I think he can just become the next. Just get you just you just can enter into a race into your local kart like into your local like go kart race. Smashed everyone. Look, Hamilton. There, there are so many YouTube videos. He smashed everyone. Like he wow. smashed everyone. He, he was, his rise to Formula One was so quick. It was like it was so impressive. So nowadays, a lot of it is just based around money. Then, yeah. Why did it transition to that? Is it just because all of these people are so just much, owning the team? It's so or? much more complicated now. The sport to, to assemble a Formula One car, it costs so much more than how it was even fifteen years ago. The, the number of personnel that you need on a team is so much more than how how it used to be. Because these cars are so much more complex. There's so much more to it. But then why does that mean it's like the, the richer drivers, like say from their background, are getting in? Because, Isn't that just to do with the well, team and their it's because, financial management? Well, it's because, for example, with Lance, someone like Lance Stroll, he's, he's pretty good to be fair. Maybe he does deserve to be an F1, but his dad literally owns the team. Which team? Uh, it's Aston Martin. So his dad runs the team. His dad pumps in all the money. So he's going to have a say in who the drivers are as well. So he probably just had his own like back garden, yeah, go kart, probably. Courts, he's, a, he's a billionaire, yeah, go kart track. He's 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 a billionaire. He can do what he can do what fair he wants. Enough, essentially, fair enough. So it's very money centered, money oriented now. Okay, I mean, for me personally, I think I've asked everything I wanted to ask in terms of giving a broad overview of Formula One. Do you think there are any gaps that we've missed out on? 
We've talked about the history. We've talked about the nature of the cars, how they work, what makes them so unique. Um, we've talked about the context around the greatest drivers now. Um, the circuits. The different mm. tracks, yeah, the different circuits. Um, is there anything else we really have to think about? Mm, I don't know. Ian, do you think there are any particular key events that have happened that, you know, if you want to get into Formula 1, you should just know about? Well, like anything to watch, pick up on YouTube, or like any yeah, three like, or four, like, right, best moments. Incredible yeah, races. Like, yeah, but yeah, yeah. 2008 Brazilian Grand Prix would just be one race that if you want to go if you want to know what a title showdown really is like watch the 2008 Brazilian Grand Prix because that title was decided on the last corner of the last lap of the last race wow. of the of that season that's where the title was decided so that, if you want to talk about a proper showdown watch that it had everything interchangeable conditions like part of it was wet part of it was dry it was between everything. between the two biggest teams, McLaren and Ferrari, the two best drivers, Lewis Hamilton and at that time Felipe Massa. What about the 2007 Chinese Grand Prix? No, <laughs> don't, <laughs> don't watch that one. <laughs> Just don't watch that one. Okay, but some other some other really cool races to watch would be maybe maybe like a Monaco Grand Prix because then you can appreciate just how skilled a driver has to be to circulate that car around a, a, such a narrow track. Oh yeah, man. It looks disgusting. It's, because it, the car's wide it's as hell disgusting. as well. And maybe re read up a few stories on Ayrton Senna. He's probably the biggest personality in Formula 1. And he's had some incredible moments. For example, in 1988, in qualifying um, for the Monaco Grand Prix, he out-qualified his teammate, Alain Prost, in the same car by a second and a half. Think about in Formula One, if you outqualify your teammate by two tenths, that's light years. Two tenths of a second. That's two tenths of yeah. 0.2 seconds. Think, Think about surely if you just make a you go off for like 0.2 of a second. If you click but if you click both of your thumbs pretty much at the same time, like if you think it's at the same time, they're most likely going to be differentiated by about a tenth of a second. Yeah, so our hearing resolution just can't pick up that difference. And in that's, time. Light that's years. insane. That's light years it's for a lot. Incredible. That, that, that's how the difference between the best car and the fifth best car around a around a four mile track is about seven tenths of a second. 0.7 seconds. Wow. But that difference is enough for them to win consistently. Every like, single race. That's why it's incredible that Lewis Hamilton with those margins will win over half of his races. It's unheard of. It's, no, it's, it's unheard of. Yeah, that, that is incredible. For Hamilton to do that. So would you say most races are fairly close or are they always like... Well... Because sometimes it's just like, you know, more Hamilton often, just might start off so well in the first half that it's like, it's just over. Yeah. More often than not, the races aren't that close. But sometimes the races are extremely close. For example, the first race of the season was last week and bearing in mind they're driving for an hour and a half, it was only seven tenths of a second which separated first and second. But there's one race the 2002 uh, US Grand Prix, which was differentiated by, differentiated by 11 milliseconds. Wow. For the whole race. <laughs> and the 1986 Spanish Grand Prix between uh, Air and Senna, who won it, and Nigel Mansell, differentiated by 14 milliseconds. It's just so close. Yeah, okay, that that's crazy. I mean, you can watch all of this on YouTube, can't you? Yes. Yeah, you and say, because obviously most people may be getting into it probably can't sit through a whole hour and a half of just watching cars go around yeah. in circles technically. It can, it can um, get boring to be well, Would you say, because then if you say most races aren't that close, usually people will be like, oh yeah, I'll watch the you know last couple of laps or something yeah. because it will be the most interesting. So would you actually say watch maybe the first half rather than the last half? I'd say probably the most interesting times are the first three or four laps in an F1 race and the last five laps. Those are probably the most interesting times because if you think about it, it's like you're building up to the climax, which is the end of the race. And that's when it's just a straight dogfight normally. But mm. in the first half of the race, you're managing your tyres so you can go for as long as possible before you pit because then you want the freshest rubber at the end. 
mm-hmm. and then that's where the that's where the gloves come off and they really go for it yeah and that, and and it's fortunately because it's getting closer the sport it's been happening a lot more recently so it's getting more interesting and Verstappen's just coming up. Like he's he's on the come up still, <laughs> and Hamilton's just peaking. Okay, yeah, I, I think I'm pretty happy now. I feel satiated in my thirst for knowledge about Formula One. So thank you for uh, giving that overview. Is there anything else you think is worth covering, or are you happy with it for now? Before episode two, which we said will be all about Lewis Hamilton. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> all I'll say is that Hamilton is the goat. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But but thank you very much for having me. It was very interesting. Uh, thank it's, you. It's good to talk to you guys. No, it was a pleasure. Us, uh, one, one thing that Thomas said once, and I think it's really funny, on one of the recent episodes, um, we said to him, thank you for being here. And he said, thank you for being. And um, yeah, I thought it was thank really you nice. For being. Yeah. <laughs> Thomas. Yeah, a very Thomas thing to say. Anyway, all right, we'll leave it there, okay? Thank you very much. Peace. 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 Thank you for listening to this episode of Getting It. If you enjoyed this episode, or didn't, then feel free to leave us a rating and review on the Apple Podcasts app, or on the Apple Podcasts website. We'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, or questions about anything we discussed, so feel free to email us at thoughts at gettingit.co.uk. You can also reach us on Twitter or Instagram at gettingit underscore pod. You can find all the links in the show notes.